0: evening will be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. I think about it uh, in terms of the history of, of uh, the time period in which this passage was written. This is not too far removed from the time of the judges. And, and throughout the book of the judges we had that terrible cycle. Apostasy, oppression, a cry for help and then deliverance. Do you remember that cycle? Israel would get fat with their circumstances and then they would forget God and slip into apostasy. And then God would send some kind of an oppression, uh, some kind of an oppressing nation that would make it more troublesome for them. And then Israel, as a result of that, would be at the end of her rope and then finally would cry out to God for help. And at the first sign of turning, God would, would send a judge like Gideon or Samson to deliver Israel out of trouble. And then Israel would get fat again with their circumstances and forget God and the cycle would start all over again. The time of the judges spanned about 350 years of Israel's history and Samuel here is really the last of the judges. Now, he's not mentioned in the book of the Judges, but, but he really is the last of the judges. We'll see that here in this passage. This passage. And the story of Israel's history that we're going to look at tonight follows that cycle that we saw in Judges. That there is a sense in which they have turned away, they've, they've received some persecution, now they're going to cry out to God for help and receive deliverance. And Samuel, like many judges before him, will lead them out of this oppression. He will be the judge that leads them out and reminds them of God's goodness and His demand to be followed. And they will find deliverance through God's man, Samuel. And we'll learn from this passage that God delivers those who are willing to acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and devote themselves exclusively to God. So let me read our text of Scripture for us, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. And the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim, the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the ashtaroths. From among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. God delivers those who repent of their sins and devote themselves exclusively to Him. In chapter 7, we see three main actions. First, repentance. Second, deliverance. And third, remembrance. Repentance, deliverance, and remembrance. So first, repentance. In verses 1-6, through the voice of God is revered once again, like it ought to have been, like it was back in the day of Joshua, like it will be during the time of David. The voice of God is revered once again. This is a sign of Israel's repentance. Now the ark, remember, had been captured by the Philistines. And then the Philistines returned it. Really, God rescued it on His own. He put the, Philist- put the Philistines to death in order for them to send it away on these two milk cows, you remember. And it made its way back to, um, to Beth Shemesh. And of course, they they did terribly in receiving it and offered a, a, a improper sacrifice to God. But God was merciful and, and the, the ark ended up at the house of, Abinadab and Kiriath-Jearim. And Abinadab, apparently a Levite, appoints one of his sons to keep watch over the ark. And we're going to find out during the time of David that all the years in which the, the, the ark of the Lord was in the house of Abinadab, his family would be blessed. God would, would bless um, them for the, their proper care of it, I believe. And the reason I think that they, they didn't send it back to the tabernacle which would have been at Shiloh prior to this, was likely because uh, Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines in chapter 4 and very well overtaken by them. Uh, At the very least, I don't think any Israelites were living there any longer. And so they didn't have a place to meet with God. And it wouldn't be until, I think, David would come along until they they finally set a a place back up. They'll have temporary places like you're going to see here with Samuel, but they don't have a permanent place like they... Do throughout many of the, the parts of, of uh, Israel's history. Notice in verse 2 how God is preparing the hearts of Israel during this time in which the people were waiting for proper worship to be restored in the tabernacle. Verse 2, From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath Jearim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The word lamented there shows that Israel is sorrowful because of something they're they've done not necessarily because of the circumstances alone but but likely because they are in some sense experience experiencing wounds that were self-inflicted that that they are crying out to God not only because they are oppressed by the Philistines which we'll see here in just a, a little bit but but that some of this pain this trouble is coming because of their own sin, their own foolishness, their own turning from God. And it very well could be that Samuel serves as the voice of God to the people. Remember, Samuel is a man of many talents, many uh, responsibilities, a man of many hats. He, in addition to being a judge, as we'll see at the end of this passage, he also is a prophet and a priest. And his responsibility is to speak on behalf of God, to go around to the city centers and call people to repent. This is what God says. Now you come and, and turn from your sins and obey God. And so at the end of verse 2, we have apparent contrition and repentance on the part of Israel. And Samuel saw this. that They are lamenting to the Lord. But Samuel was a wise man. Samuel was a godly man. He wasn't certainly was not perfect as we've seen in the past, but, but he was a godly man. And in order for it to be clear that this was real repentance, Samuel wanted to see proof because we need to see what real repentance looks like. And the nature of genuine repentance is seen in verse 3 and verse 4. But, but repentance involves two primary elements that we'll see here in verses 3 and 4. First, removal of idols. Okay, that is putting God back in first place. And then second, exclusive devotion to God. Removal of idols and exclusive, exclusive devotion to God. So element number one of repentance, removal of idols. You see that in verse 3. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods. So we could ask after the first part, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, well, how do we do that, Samuel? How do we return to the Lord with all our hearts? Well, he tells us, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. That's the first part of Repentance. It's the removal of idols. If you think about it from Israel's perspective, this was not going to be an easy task, was it? I mean, the Canaanites' idolatry, whom they are um, mimicking or following in their footsteps, that is Israel, Canaanites' idolatry included immoral relationships right there at the pagan temples. And so, in order to appease the Baal and Ashtoreth gods, A person would come and perform an immoral relationship right in front of the idols as a way to offer a sacrifice to those gods. As a way to wake up those gods for them to start working. This was kind of the the first act that these gods expected. This is what Israel had been participating in. There were these Baal and Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth gods all over the place. So for Israel to give something up like this, it would be a significant change, right? It's turning away from darkness, away from evil, turning towards God. Well, we're looking at this first part, turning away from evil. That's what Israel needed to do. If this was going to be a genuine repentance, then they would have to come to God apart from an immoral relationship that that they had been enjoying And that would be an act on the part of Israel that would be completely unnatural. The only way that a person would give up that kind of pleasure for the pure worship of the true God is if God first did a supernatural work within them to lead them to repentance. And that's the same thing that's true of us. The only way that we would give up the sins that we enjoyed as if God did a supernatural work within us. And apparently that's exactly what happens to Israel. Look at verse 4. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is just uh, a plural for Ashtoreth, which was the individual um, female God, and served the Lord alone. So, so they, they do this first part, which is turning away from idols. Now the second part is found at the end of verse 3. And it is exclusive devotion to God. So the first part of repentance is turning from idols. And the second part that's necessary is exclusive devotion to God. You see that second part of verse 3. And if you direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, then He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So not only were they to turn from idols, because they could turn to idol, from their idols to what? To other idols, right? Or other false gods. And what God is saying, no, the repentance involves more than that. Yes, you have to give up those idols, but you need to turn to me and serve me exclusively. that is uh, to the exclusion of every other God. This is what made it difficult uh, this is what makes it difficult in Japan with the the pantheistic sort of mindset that we'll see next week um, they they encourage people just to. You know, if you're going to buy into Christianity, so to speak, then just add it to your your other pantheon of gods. And, and what God is saying is that's not true worship. That's not true repentance. Okay? What true repentance is, is turning from your idols and actually serving only the living and true God. And that's what He's calling Israel to do here. It's not simply thinking rightly about God or doing a few rituals to appease God. It's actually turning in faith to God. is turning in, in repentance to Him, serving Him and Him alone. And we'll see how that works out in, the, in, the, day, in the, uh, the verses ahead. And so we see this repentance displayed. And notice you see the two parts of repentance in verse 4. The turning from idols in the first part and the exclusive devotion, serving the Lord alone. Both of those elements are there. Samuel, I think, now recognizes that as he's going around on his circuit likely to preach to these various cities, that, that he's starting to see that people are serious about genuine repentance. And as more and more people start to put away the bales and the they, they, um Samuel thinks, well, maybe they're ready for a formal ceremony, a formal assembly of God's people so that they can make this official. And that's what he called for in verse 5. He says, Gather everyone to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gather there in verse 6, and they, again, here now in a public setting, they display their commitment to God. This is the, the idea of drawing water and pouring it out before the Lord and then fasting. This drawing water and pouring it out is probably a means to show their ritual cleansing That or, or it could just mean that, you know what, they're giving up water like they're giving up food. That's the fasting part in the second part of verse 6. So it could be they're just saying, See this water that we could be drinking and using for our benefit. We're pouring it on the ground to you, God, showing that we are fully devoted to you. There's nothing more important than us getting atonement for our sins. And notice maybe the the starkest part of verse 6 is their confession. Towards the middle of the verse it says, We have sinned against the Lord. They they acknowledge their sin. That's that's exactly what confession is. It's saying about our sin what God says about our sin. And so they're saying, God, we have sin. All of these, this false worship that we all this worship that we've been doing is improper worship. It is sin. It is a violation of your law. And so we have, I believe, genuine repentance in verse, verses one through six. Second action that we see in verse, we see this in verses seven through eleven. It is deliverance. The first repentance and then deliverance. And the deliverance is seen by means of God showing His power. The power of God is being displayed um, in delivering Israel. Now what we should notice here in verse 7 is that there is ongoing oppression by the Philistines. It's evident here when we read verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Israel. And then Israel was afraid. Now the Philistines up until this point had already been persecuting Israel. And they were seeking to gain an advantage because they wanted Israel's land. They wanted Israel to be subject subjected to them. So the first opportunity or sign uh, for them to, to attack, they were going to use it. And apparently the Philistines see Israel at Mizpah either at a point of weakness or at a point of defiance. You know, weakness would be, uh, you know, all Israel is here and they're in a state of mourning, repentance. They, they're they not here ready to battle. So we have all of Israel in one place. Instead of us going all to the various cities and attacking Israel and winning against all those cities, why don't we just... They're all corralled together in one spot. Let's kill them all here. Make the, the others who we don't kill our servants. So it could be that... that the Philistines smelled weakness, or it could be that they sensed defiance. Maybe they saw this as a as a rallying cry on the part of Israel. Like Israel's coming together and they're they're bringing their God back into play. Before they had been ignoring Him and following the same God kind of the gods that we serve, and, and maybe they're going to try to dominate us. but We're not going to allow that. So whatever the case, I'm I'm not sure which it is. Whether they come. Uh, because Israel looks weak or because Israel looks defiant. Whatever the case, the Philistines see this as an opportunity to attack. And Israel was clearly afraid at the end of verse 7. It tells us that. And so what do they do? When they're in a time of trouble like they have before, they have found God to be a deliverer and so they call out to Him for help. And in this case, they call out by means of their intercessor, Samuel, verse 8. The sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. What an improved, a, a, stark, a starkly different response, if starkly is the word, from chapter 4. Right? In chapter 4, do you remember what happened? When, when the Philistines were attacking and they actually won... They lost, I think, 4,000 people. What did they do? Go get the ark of God and bring it here to battle. And let's let it win the victory for us. Get our lucky charm and we surely will win. That was their response in chapter 4. Here in chapter 7, I think they've learned something about how God works. That God is not confined to a box. That this... The Ark of the Covenant is not going to win the victory for them. God is. And so now, instead of turning to the Ark, which was not far away, they turn to God through, by means of Samuel. And Israel, even though they are in human terms at their most vulnerable position, they are actually the strongest. And why is that? They are the strongest when they are most vulnerable Because God is on their side. It's the same for us. When we are weak, we are strong. When we are weak, it causes us to depend upon God, and that's when we are strong. A small child might be terrified of a dog or a clown or anything, and and those things might make him visibly shaken. But when he is near his father, and he holds tightly to the pant leg of his daddy, he's going to be fine because he is depending on his dad to protect him. And I think the same is true for us. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way in his commentary, desperation is never in trouble when it relies on the omnipotent God. So when we're at our lowest point, when we are desperate for help, we are never in trouble. So long as we rely on the omnipotent God, we have God on our side. In verses 9 and 10, we see that Samuel intercedes on behalf of Israel. So they're calling out to God, we need deliverance, and Samuel uh, speaks to God on their behalf. And while Samuel's calling out to God, the Philistines are approaching. And, and you can almost picture uh, that, that in the, the foreground, as you're, you're watching this go on, that you can see the Philistines approaching. And, and Samuel's trying to hurry up and get this sacrifice taken care of so that God will hear and God will respond. Samuel agrees to speak and he offers this suckling lamb, just a lamb that's probably just a few days old. It had to be more than eight days old. But, but, but a, a lamb that was still nursing. And he, he offers this lamb as a burnt offering. And you can almost hear the sound of the Philistine troops approaching as Samuel is burning up the lamb on the altar and praying to God. And at just the right time, Verse 10 tells us that the Lord thundered with the great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them. As they're approaching to the battle line ready to attack, God approaches to the battle line as well, doesn't He? And He doesn't need Israel to come, hurry up, gather your weapons and help me. God puts them into a state of confusion. The same word that's used in Exodus 14. When the, the Egyptians are fast approaching Israel, Israel, who have their backs to the Red Sea and say, Moses, why did you lead us out here to die? And as they come in, even into the Red Sea, as Israel's walking across, they very likely could have overtaken Israel, but for God, who can put them into a state of confusion and cause them to to be unclear, afraid, and... God destroyed them even when they're on the heels of Israel. Well, God does the work and then Israel cleans up the mess in verse 11. So we have first repentance and then deliverance. And the third thing that we see in this passage is remembrance. And again, I think this is a sharp contrast from what we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 4, they were in trouble. They called out to deliverance, but they didn't call to God. They called to the ark. They called out to the ark for deliverance. And in the end, they lost lots of troops. And in the end, there was nothing really to remember about the situation. So they didn't set up any stones here. They see God do a great work. They see God win the victory. And Samuel wants them to be reminded about this. Because he knows that for them and for the future generations, that it was critical. They did not forget what God had done so, the power of God is acknowledged by Israel. It's displayed in His deliverance and now it's acknowledged by Israel in verses 12 to 17. Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far God has helped me. Ebenezer is a word that's translated for you in the margin of your Bible. What does it mean? See it there? Stone of help. Good. It's the same word that we sing in Come Thou Fount. Maybe you kind of gloss over that, but here I raise my Ebenezer, or here I raise my, some, some, sometimes it's translated cry of victory or, or stone of help. Uh, that's, that's what it is here. A stone of help. Hither by thy help I'm come. This is a memorial to remind Israel of the victory that God accomplished at Mizpah. And notice that Samuel doesn't just set up the monument. He actually explains its significance. He doesn't say, okay, well, here's another opportunity for me to, to make a, a statue or something. Make, make something that, that will, people will remember me by. No, he wants, to, he wants people to remember God by this. At the end of the verse it says, Thus far, or up until this point, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, up until this point, the Lord has helped us. Now, how could Samuel say that? Did he forget about what happened in chapter 4? When the ark was captured? When 34,000 of the people of Israel died? Where was God then? Where was God's help then? And the truth is, Samuel is right in saying, up until this point, God has helped us because even in their defeat, God was helping them. Sometimes God helps by doing what He does here. Shows mercy. uh, Brings about a definitive victory. But other times, God helps through disciplining and chastening. And that's what was happening in chapter 4. It wasn't that God was far away, that God didn't care, that God wasn't near the people of Israel. It was that He was helping them in a way that they weren't willing to accept. He was rebuking them. He was turning them off of the path that they were heading so that they could learn the ways of God. I look back up uh, on my upbringing and am profoundly thankful for my godly parents. And I can say as a whole that my parents helped me. They helped me. Sometimes their help came in the form of things that I liked. They gave me things like money and clothes. My dad had his own business, so a job. They gave me gifts. An unlocked refrigerator. Just access to their food. A place to stay, of course. But other times, their help came in the form of something that I didn't like. And that was correction and rebuke It came in the form of challenging my thinking. It came in the form of removing privilege. It came in the form of corporal punishment. And yet, all of that given to me by my parents was for my good. And now that I look back on it, I see it as help. You know, maybe during those times I'm thinking, how could you be on my side? You seem to be opposed to me right now. And yet, now that, I, that I'm a father, now that I see the value of what was going on, I see that they helped me. So Samuel is saying to Israel, listen, up until this point, God has helped us. All that you see that God has done, all that's been allowed into your life was meant so that we would trust in Him. You see, God often does this. He often knocks out all of the man-made props and crutches that we have set up in order to hold ourselves up in a world that is no friend of grace. And we think we need all of these things to to make sure that we're standing firm. And God takes them all away until we're left just standing on His foundation alone. So that we, the only thing we have to lean on is Him. And friends, that is the most loving thing that God can do for us is to help us by taking away all the crutches that are keeping us from trusting in Him fully. What a stark contrast from what happened in chapter 4 when there was imminent danger. In chapter 4, Israel was struck down by the Philistines. In chapter 7, Philistines were struck down by Israel. In chapter 4... They cried out in verse 3, Let the ark save us! In chapter 7, they cry out, Let God deliver us. Samuel, call out to our God. He has to be the one to deliver us. And the result in chapter 4 was Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. And the result in chapter 7 is Ebenezer. God is my stone of help. We have remembrance. And I think this is important for us to do the same thing because it's so easy to forget about the good things that God has done for us. The lessons that we've learned. God continued to protect Israel in verses 13-17. to Apparently, for the rest of Samuel's career as judge, Israel was protected from the Philistines. They no longer came within Israel's border Uh, We know that that's going to happen when David comes along. But at least for the rest of Samuel's career, Israel is protected from the Philistines. And and Israel gained control of the cities that once had been taken from them by their neighbors. Their their nearest neighbors to the south are Ekron and Gath. And in verse 14, it tells us that all those cities that had been taken, the territories that Ekron and Gath had taken, they apparently gave back. Or Israel took them back, effectively, with the help of God. And then in verses 15 to 17, God continued to bless Israel by allowing Samuel to rule them in truth. And I think these last three verses serve for us as a marker for the ending of the first main section of the book of Samuel. The first part of the book, chapters 1 to 7, is about the reign of Samuel as Israel's judge. The decline of Eli no longer will the the prophecy, the, the the house of the prophet be with you, Eli. Now it's going to be with Samuel. So you have the rise of Samuel as Israel's judge, Israel's prophet. Now we have a change in chapters eight through fifteen in the storyline. And now we start to see Samuel's still involved, but but now we start to see more less about Samuel and more about the rise of Samuel as king. Chapters eight to fifteen and then from chapter sixteen till really the end of Second Samuel, we have the decline of Samuel and the rise of David. In verse 16, we learn that Samuel went on a regular circuit of these central locations. And these locations, if you look in the map in the back of your Bible, they're not very far away from each other. I think the farthest distance between any two of them is about 15, 16 miles. But apparently, they were regional locations where these, the, the people of Israel would come to and say, this is kind of our place or we meet and, and Samuel would go there and and speak the truth of God to them. This was a way that God maintained His truth in the region of Israel. In verse 17, Samuel builds an altar to God in his hometown of Ramah. And I think this is further proof, again, that Shiloh is, is destroyed. There's no way that they can set the altar back up there uh, if Samuel's building an altar here at his home. Four principles I think we can learn from... Chapter 7, 1 Samuel, number 1. There is no salvation apart from repentance. There is no salvation apart from repentance. If we want to put it in terms of Israel and their military history, there is no deliverance apart from repentance. The kind of repentance that Samuel calls for in chapter 7 is the kind of repentance that God calls for us in salvation. That, that we need to, in the same way, put away the things that we once loved, those idols that are taking place of God. And we need to turn and exclusively devote ourselves to God. We have to put away the things that, that we love more than God, the things that are competing for first place, so that God can be our all in all. And we also need to commit ourselves to exclusive devotion to God. See, our repentance doesn't coerce God's mercy. Our repentance is a sign of God's mercy. Repentance, like faith, is not the cause of our salvation, but the means or the condition by which God, demand, uh, by which God brings about the salvation that He's promised. And so, it's true that repentance is a necessary condition for salvation. That is, it's a means by which we receive salvation. But, but here, second principle we learn is that repentance is not a one-time action. Initial repentance for salvation is a one-time action. That is, when we first come to Christ, we need to repent once and for all from our sins to God. But, but do you realize, friends, that we are called to a life of repentance? We don't just simply repent one time. I'll turn from the idols and turn to God. Because by, by our very nature, we drift. We start to lose focus of where we're heading. heading and, and as a result, we start to set up these false gods. And we start to worship these false gods. And we start to forget the true and living God. And God says, alright, time. Repent again. Not that we're having to regain salvation, but we constantly need to evaluate the idols that are taking God's place. We constantly need to be putting them away and constantly need to be devoting ourselves exclusively to Christ. No salvation apart from repentance. Our salvation comes through repentance, a one-time action. But... Our life as a Christian, as long as we are here all the way till the grave, is going to be a life of repentance. Thirdly, a decisive step of spiritual growth does not guarantee ongoing commitment. A decisive step of spiritual growth does not guarantee ongoing commitment. Now, in the case of Israel, we would expect that you know, they've learned their lesson. They have seen the dangers of their false gods and they've taken a step of repentance. They've received deliverance from God. They've, they've remembered it with this stone of help and now it's going to be smooth sailing for them. They're going to trust God and, and follow God's appointed leader. But you know what the very next episode is in the life of Israel, chapter 8? Israel does not turn to God when pressured by the Philistines. Instead, they say, we want our own king. And when Samuel goes to God and tells him about this, God says, don't fear, Samuel. It's not, they're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Okay. Do, do you see what I'm saying about the, the previous point? They, they have made a commitment to God, but now they're starting to drift again, aren't they? And that's why we need to keep getting back on track, because... A decisive step of spiritual growth does not guarantee ongoing commitment. And we, in the same way, need to guard ourselves against complacency because it can set in very subtly, but it can be very deadly. It's like mold on a piece of bread. If you stared at a piece of bread for hours on end, you would not see any change. But under the surface, there's this tiny fungus that is growing and, make it seem, and it's going to make its way to the entire lice. And and friends, if we are not vigilant in our Christian life, we will be overtaken without even suspecting any trouble until the damage is catastrophic. And so don't wait until the color of the mold reaches the surface of your life. Preserve your life by trusting in God's Word today. Do you see some marks of immaturity? Do you see some marks of sin? You see some clear violations you are making before God. Do you you hear the voice of the Spirit through the Word and still reject Him? Own up to your sin. Turn from it. Devote yourself exclusively to God. We need to continue on in the Christian life. Continually devote ourselves to Christ. Number four. We need to work hard to remember. We need to work hard to remember. The the word remember and and the phrase do not forget, is uh, that that idea is sprinkled throughout the Scripture. And I think that's because by nature, we forget. Even the big events of life, when we saw God work in a powerful way, when we saw God's clear hand of mercy, we are quick to forget. But you know what our Ebenezer is primarily? It's not, uh, you know, some... Experience that we had necessarily, although could be. But, but our main Ebenezer is at the cross where Jesus became our stone of help, where He took upon Himself the, the blow that we should have received from our enemy, which at that time was God. While we were enemies, while we were godless, Christ died for us. Christ died for the wicked. That's what Romans 5 tells us. Christ laid down His life for us when we were enemies with Him. And because of that, we ought to remember it. And that's why we take time to remember it. Jesus told us to. The Lord's Supper. That, that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death till we come. And I think we need to do that because we by nature forget things. We forget especially when the, the cloud of uncertainty and the cloud of difficult circumstances envelops us. We forget that there's sunshine beyond the clouds. We forget that God once warmed us with that sunshine, and we need to to think for that. Uh, we need to look forward to that time once again. Don't think that the sun is gone because the clouds have come in. It simply means that that uh, we need to trust in what God has already shown us, and that's why these stones of remembrance are important. Israel used it for for them to remember and I think also for their children to ask. So what is that there for? Why why do you have that? What does that mean? Or would it help them to rely on God's grace and continue to look for him to him for grace? Let's pray. Father, thankful for Jesus, thankful that he is our our stone of help, that that we look to him for grace. We are confident that he is our Deliverer. And Lord, there are too many times when repentance looks too hard and our flesh feels too weak. And so our we say with the disciples, the, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and so Lord, please help us. We want to do what's right, but but the flesh within us wars against Your Spirit. And... Lord, we want You to have first place. So help us to be complicit with Your Spirit. Help us to to, um, to work out what You are working in us. And we pray that the result would be that much glory would be given to You. Lord, we know that You can receive glory however You please. You can receive it through us or apart from us, but we want You to receive it through us. We want more and more people to praise Your name because of our faithfulness. Not so that they could look at us and and pat us on the back, but so that they can see what kind of a great God You are to choose someone like us and, and to use us for Your glory. Pray that You would lead us in this way. In Jesus' name, Amen.